Awesome. Thank you, Clay. Everybody. Welcome to RUF. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Thomas. I'm going to move this out of the way because this is a tragedy waiting to happen. Um, I'm the campus minister here with RUF, which means it's my job to uh, be on campus, get to know you, meet with you, take you out for coffee, hear about your life, all that fun stuff. So don't be weirded out if that's something that I ask you to do. I feel like most of you have experienced that before. And if you're weirded out, then you pretend not to be. So that's great. Um, but at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that means that the primary thing that, that you're going to hear about in RUF is the gospel. It's what we call the gospel, the good news. Uh, it just means that the way that God relates to us is based on his kindness. Uh, he comes to us in Jesus, and he says, it is finished Everything. I've given you everything that you need, and all that you need to do is trust in Jesus, and you are secure, and you are safe. That's the gospel, and that's what RUF is all about. Uh, and every semester in RUF, uh, we go through a sermon series. This semester, we're going through one called Every Story Whispers His Name. Uh, and this has just kind of been a survey of the Old Testament. This is actually the last week that we're going to be doing this. Um, but our theme has been that the Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus and it offers us wisdom for the modern world. So if you remember correctly, uh, we began this semester by looking at Luke chapter 24, um, which is a, a scene in the Gospel of Luke. It's right after the resurrection. Jesus is traveling on a road to Emmaus, uh, and he runs into these disciples, and he's somehow kind of disguised. They don't know that it's Jesus. He starts talking to them, and uh, they're confused because Jesus, the person that they loved, has died. And they're, they're crushed, they're disappointed, and then the resurrected Jesus, somehow hidden, starts interacting with them. And he explains to them from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer before he would rise again. And then he reveals himself to him, and it's, it's a crazy experience. Um, but there's this hint here that, that Jesus is saying that the Old Testament somehow pointed to what would happen on Easter Sunday. The Old Testament somehow gave, gave glimpses, it gave hints of what was about to come. Um, but the resurrection, if you've read the Gospels, you know that it was, in some sense, a surprise. Uh, people weren't expecting it. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, a book that I've talked about a ton that I really love, uh, the, the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she calls her chapter on the resurrection, God's Wonderful Surprise. It was, it was something that happened that no one was really expecting. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it just came out of nowhere. In fact, the resurrection of the dead was kind of a common thing that people were talking about in Jesus' day. Uh, there were two schools of thought, or there were more than two, but two primary schools of thought within the Jewish community at the time. There were the Sadducees who, who didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. And then there were the Pharisees that did believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. And, and the re they came to these conclusions based on these various texts in the Old Testament that kind of hinted at resurrection. Um, so there are several passages, like I said, that give us a glimpse. And tonight I want to look at one in particular, Ezekiel 37, uh, that Clay just read for us. Uh, so to kind of orient you, if you were here uh, last week, we looked at God's covenant with David from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, this story that we're looking at tonight, it's about 400 years after David. 
Uh, if you remember correctly, the promise that God gave to David was this uh, sin-proof, death-proof, time-proof promise. It was unshakable. And this is a promise that God gave to David for the people of Israel. And now, 400 years into the future, things have taken a turn for the worst. Um, God's people have abandoned him. God's people, they have been given everything as a gift throughout the entire Old Testament, throughout the whole scriptures. And they have this tendency of just going after other gods. They have this tendency of rejecting God, even though he's given them everything that they have. And the result from that is exile. Exile. The people are in the promised land for a while, and then they are taken out of the promised land because they reject God. So at this passage that we're looking at tonight, God's people have been sent into exile in Babylon. And then Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, has been conquered. The temple where God is worshipped has been destroyed. So can you imagine what it would feel like to be an Israelite at that time? The people are in despair. They're in despair. And it's into this despair that God gives his people this vision of resurrection hope. And so this passage provided hope for them, and I believe it offers us hope as well. So as we're looking at this passage, we're just going to consider two points. Uh, first, our exile complex, and second, our enduring hope. So our exile complex and our enduring hope. Uh, so with that in mind, let me pray for us, and we can go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, I'm just reminded as I've been uh, sitting with this passage of scripture, um, yeah, that your word is powerful. Um, the prophet Ezekiel was sent to do an impossible task, uh, to uh, call dry bones to live, um, and miraculously, they did. Uh, Lord, and it wasn't because of anything uh, remarkable that Ezekiel said, but it was because your word is powerful, and your word has the power to bring the dead to life. And so, Lord, that's, that's my confidence um, as I stand here. Um, so, Lord, I, I just pray that you would use this, your word, um, to bring life where there is death. Uh, all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first off, uh, our exile complex. Uh, we see in verse 1 of this passage that Ezekiel is given a vision. It says, The Spirit of the Lord takes him, and it sets him down in the middle of a valley, Full of bones. And it picks up in verse 2 and it says, And he, the Lord, led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Uh, so this is a, a particularly striking image that the prophet Ezekiel is given. Uh, he's brought out into this valley, and there's just, there's dry bones everywhere. And then we're given kind of an interpretive key to this moving forward in verse 11. So if you want to look with me there, it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So this vision that the Lord gives to Ezekiel, it's supposed to be a picture of how Israel sees themselves. They see themselves as dried up, as their hope is lost, as cut off. 
Uh, this reminds me, I was just um, talking with uh, Tyson actually about uh, Aldi beforehand. So I shop at Aldi uh, pretty frequently. It's a great place to shop, but something that maybe you need to know about Aldi, uh, their fruit and like their produce in general look amazing when you're in the store. And um, what you don't know is that they're like inches from death's door, always. Um, so I had a particularly vivid experience of this one time. Uh, my wife and I bought a watermelon one summer, um, as one does in the summer. And so we got it on like Thursday, and then we went out of town for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we had left this watermelon like sitting on our kitchen counter. Um, and so, you know, we didn't really expect anything bad to happen. Uh, so we get back from our trip on Sunday. And the second that we open the door, there is just, like, something is off. There was, like, a stench of, like, a dead person in the house. And we just open it, and we're like, what is going on? Like, what happened? Did we forget to take the trash out? And we look at the counter where, theoretically, we had left this watermelon. And there was just, like, a pool of sludge. So this watermelon that looked completely, like, filled with life, it looked okay, had just completely decayed. And it had just, it had exploded all over the place and stained everything and, and it stunk like crazy. This is how Israel sees themselves right now at this point. They see themselves as obviously in decay, as obviously dead, as without hope of being brought back to freshness, as without hope of being brought back to life. And is Israel just being dramatic like when someone, if you were talking to someone and they said, oh, I just feel like my bones are dried up, my hope is lost and I am cut off, you'd probably say like, uh, you know, maybe you should talk to someone, but also it's probably not that bad. Um, for Israel, it actually was that bad. Uh, they were facing the death of their culture. Uh, Israel, if you remember correctly, they're the children of Abraham. And the thing that's said about Abraham in the Old Testament was Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Israel has proven to be a people who does not believe again and again. So they're the children of the one who believed God and they don't believe. They were given this promised land and now they're away in exile. They had a temple where God, where his, his presence was said to dwell, where he, he dwelt among his people and the temple is now destroyed. They were given this amazing king, David, and then his throne was given kind of a promise of like, this is going to last forever. And now the throne sits empty. You see, they're not being dramatic. They, they are facing the death of their culture. They are cut off. That's what they say. We are indeed cut off. In the Old Testament, this is the language of covenant curse. They see themselves as cursed. And the worst part is, it's their fault. They've done this by rejecting the Lord. They're cursed. They consider themselves a dried up bag of bones without hope and cursed. And I think for good reason in a lot of ways. So this is a historical fact, right? This happened. This is something that Israel had experienced. But, but what does that have to do with us some 2,500 years into the future? I think the exile of Israel, it, it's a picture of something that I think we can all relate to. It's a picture of a greater exile that we all experience. Uh, maybe you're here today and you're not ready to fully accept the, the biblical worldview. Maybe some parts of it seem crazy. But from the biblical standpoint, 
We were created for perfection. We were created for perfect relationship with God, for perfect relationship with one another. We were created for a perfect relationship with creation. We see this in, in the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. This is what we were created for. And yet, sin has entered into the world. So we're left in this place where we were created to live under God's smile. Like the first human beings knew what it was like for God to say to them, you are very good. You are very good. They they received God's complete and total affirmation. That's what we were created for. And yet, that's not what we experience. See, sin has entered into God's good creation, and our experience, it's one of exile. It's a longing for home. Sin leaves us all with an exile complex. Uh, the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, said this in, one of, in a letter to his son one time. He said, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. Our whole nature is soaked with a sense of exile. We were made for a perfect world, and yet our experience is not perfect. We were made for fellowship with God, and yet we often feel distant from him. We were made for perfect relationship where we feel completely accepted, and yet so often we feel distant from people. And not just feel distant, there's conflict, there's alienation, there's abuse We were made to feel at peace, and you can testify to the fact that we often feel anxiety. We were made to feel like we had a purpose, and and so often we're just depressed to the point where we can't get out of bed. We were made for life, eternal life, and ultimately, we will die. See, this is what it means for our whole nature to be soaked with a sense of exile. It means that we feel a gap between what this world is and what it should be. We see things in this world like racism, sexism, sexual assault, poverty, and and these are things that we see, and we don't just dislike them. We don't just dislike them. We don't just think they're inconvenient. We We hate them. Like, we want to condemn these things with moral force. We don't just want to say, oh, that's inconvenient. We want to say, no, this is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. That is a sense of exile. When we see these things and we recognize this is not the way it's supposed to be. So we feel a gap between what this world is and what it should be, but I think we feel a gap between what we are and what we should be. I mean, how often in the last week have you done something that you're like, I hate that I just did that. I can't believe I did that again. That is this sense of exile. You see, life in a fallen world, it can feel like our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. And we are indeed cut off. So the question is, what do we do with this exile complex that we feel? What do we do with it? Well, I think uh, there's a couple things we can do with it. I mean, first off, uh, we can medicate it. We can medicate it. Uh, We can go after things, even good things, things like academics, things like sex, things like romance, exercise, leisure, food, alcohol, We can try to medicate our pain. We can try to deny the fact that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, that we're not the way that we're supposed to be. But the simple fact is, no matter how much we medicate, 100% of us are going to die. 
And that's nothing we do is going gonna, is gonna to take that away. It's a fact that deep down, like, we just can't feel okay with. Like, and you know this if you've ever been to a funeral of someone that you love, especially if it's someone who died at a young age. Like, there's just something in you that's like, people shouldn't just stop. Like, people start talking about, like, oh, you know, well, you know, it was their time. It's like, no, it wasn't. They shouldn't have died. See, this is that sense of exile. No matter how much we medicate it, it just won't go away. But also, we can, we can wallow in it. We can give in to despair. We can give up. Or we can just say, well, if this is how it's going to go, then I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to try and get the most out of life. But ultimately, that just leads to despair. So we have this exile complex. But, but fortunately, this passage, that's not where it ends. It doesn't just point out our problem. It gives us an enduring hope. So second, let's look at our enduring hope. So starting in verse 4, the Lord tells Ezekiel in this valley of bones, he tells him to preach. There's this valley of dry bones just all over the place. Just think of, imagine millions of bones in a valley that are dried up. They've been dead for a long time. And the Lord says to him, I want you to preach. Like, can you imagine the futility that you would feel in a situation like that? Like, what good could that possibly do? We see this in, in verse 4. The Lord says, Say to them, that is the bones, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. What's the result? Well, the result of this is remarkably, this is one of kind of my favorite, uh, favorite verses in the Bible here. Um, it says, um, after he prophesied, it says, behold, a rattling. He, he's preaching to these bones, and behold, things start to shake. Like something's happening. The opposite of what you would expect, something is happening the bones started to rattle, and then they're knit together. They're covered with muscles. They're covered with skin. And so that when Ezekiel looks out, he sees just a whole bunch of dead bodies on the ground where there were just dry bones, which is remarkable, but now it's even creepier because there's a bunch of dead, lifeless bodies. Well, what happens next? The Lord tells him to preach again. He tells him to preach breath into these people. And what happens? These lifeless bodies are given breath. Okay, what's going on here beside a really like cool, creepy, kind of heavy metal image given by the Lord to the prophet Ezekiel? Um, this is, it's, it's weird that there's kind of this two-stage process, right? You've got the, you know, he preaches and then there's cadavers, he preaches and then there's a resurrected army. I think what's going on here, it, it's kind of an intentional callback to the creation story. If you remember correctly, or if you're unfamiliar with it, in the creation story, God creates humanity out of the earth. And then after that, he breathes his life into humanity. He created man in two stages. So first he formed him, and then he breathed life into them. And so God here is reminding his people through Ezekiel that he is still the creator God. He is still the creator God, even though they are experiencing this death. He is declaring himself to be the Lord of life and death. That there's no one that he can't bring back. That there's no situation that's too hopeless. 
And he drives this point home emphatically in verses 12 and 13. After having shown this vision to Ezekiel, his prophet, God tells him to proclaim over, to, over his people in exile. He says, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. See, the hope here is not just that the Lord is the Lord of life and death. The hope here is that he calls Israel, who has rejected him, my people. Not only does he have the power to do really cool, kind of weird things, like raise up this valley of dry bones, he has a special interest in his people. The thing that he did in this vision, he's going to do for his people. Not only is he the Lord of life and death, he has a special interest in raising his people to new life. So God shows them that he's the Lord of, the life and, of life and death, but he also, in this section, gives the spirit of resurrection. We see this in verse 14. The Lord says, And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So to a people who are despairing, to a people who the, the stench of death is everywhere around them, God moves closer. He promises his presence in a new way. He promises that he will put his spirit within them. God himself is going to dwell within them in a new way. Uh, what does it mean? What's the significance of the spirit dwelling in his people? What does it mean for the spirit to dwell within us? I, I think it means resurrection is not just a future hope. It's not just something that, that will happen that's just kind of cast off in the future but it's also a present reality, a present dynamic. Uh, the Apostle Paul picks up on it this way in Romans 8. He says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of resurrection. So if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, you can, you can know for sure that what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday is your future hope. But not only that, the same spirit that made that happen lives within you right now. Right now. So what does that mean? That means that if you're a Christian, not only can you have confidence that the ultimate death you will experience, that we will all experience, can't destroy you. You can have confidence that the little deaths... The things in our life that feel like death also won't kill us. But in fact, they're going to work for our good. They're going to lead to resurrection. Nothing that happens cannot serve the final end of your being raised. Not even your own sin, your own failure, not even tragedy, and not even suffering because of the ways that you have been sinned against. Everything is going to work together for your good. So what difference does this make in our lives? I just want to consider this as we close. What difference does this enduring hope make in the life of a believer? If we all have this exile complex, how does resurrection hope, how does it transform that? Uh, you might have heard of Viktor Frankl. Uh, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Has anybody heard of this? Okay, not, not very many. Okay, one. Sweet. So I will tell you. Um, Viktor Frankl, he was a psychologist and a Holocaust survivor. And he, after uh, surviving the Holocaust, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it was about his experience in the Nazi death camps. 
And, and essentially his thesis is you have to have some sort of uh, reason for meaning, like meaning in life in order to do anything. And so he, at, from his experience in the death camps, he kind of said that there were three broad responses to the brutal environment that people had in the concentration camps. He said the first one is uh, people will get bad. Certain people will abandon all morality and simply survive. They will lie, cheat, and steal, look out for number one, because they know that they're going to die. So what's the point? Second, the, there were people who would give up. These were people who would just give in to despair because they know they're going to die. And so some of them would literally curl up and die, just on the spot. But there was a third category that he said would, instead of uh, getting bad or giving up, they would get heroic. These people faced with death, they somehow found meaning in their suffering, and they lived courageously in the face of death. And Frankel determined that those who lived heroically, they were able to do so because they had a hope that the concentration camp couldn't take away. And what I want to submit to you tonight is that the enduring hope of the resurrection enables us to live heroically. It enables us to live heroically in the face of very real pain, in the face of death, in the face of decay, in the face of our own failures. Death is no longer the ultimate reality if you're a Christian. Resurrection is. Uh, the English poet George Herbert said it this way, he said, death used to be an executioner, but the resurrection makes him just a gardener. Death used to be an executioner, but the resurrection makes him just a gardener. And I love that image because not only is it just a gardener is kind of, you know, not an executioner and not scary. What does a gardener do? A gardener plants seeds. And that's what death does. It plants a seed so that you can rise again. That's the hope of the resurrection. Uh, I, just, I just want to close with this kind of an example of, of living heroically because of the resurrection. Uh, I'm a big fan. One of my personal heroes uh, is a pastor named Tim Keller. I've listened to him for a very long time. Um, but Dr. Keller uh, has recently been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Um, and it was about 19 months ago. Miraculously, he's still alive. That's not very common. Um, but he was recently on an interview and uh, was just kind of asked to talk about his experience with cancer. So this is actually the second time that he's gotten cancer in his life. Uh, the first time, they caught it relatively early, and when he went to the doctor, uh, the doctor said to him, okay, uh, Dr. Keller, we will beat this. We'll beat this. There, there is a way that we can treat this. This is not going to be the end for you. And this time around, he was diagnosed, like I said, with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. So he goes to the doctor about 19 months ago, and the doctor said, you are going to die from this. There's no way around it. It could be in a month. It could be in five years. But there is no cure from this aggressive form of cancer. And it just kind of struck me uh, that how okay he was as he was talking about this. Um, and the host kind of picked up on it and said, well, like, how are you doing with that? And he said, honestly, like... I'm happier than I've ever been. I'm happier than I've ever been. And he said something that really stuck out to me. He said, up until this point, my wife and I had been living with this illusion of the fact that we were going to live forever. We thought we were just, like, we just weren't going to die. And he said there was just something about getting this diagnosis that really just brought that crashing down. 
And he said, and, and I've been happier because it's pushed me deeper in my relationship with God. He said, there are joys that I have found in God since finding this out because I didn't have to look for them because I was convinced that I was just never going to die. And then he, he kind of said this at the end, and it, it really stuck out to me. But he said, with this form of cancer, I could die tomorrow or I could have years ahead. And he said, I'd love to be longer, but my faith in Jesus tells me that to be with him is better. It tells me that I will be resurrected. And his final words in this interview are, you know, I really see it as if I'm in a win-win situation. Y'all, that's the sort of hope that we can have because of the resurrection of Jesus. We can live not knowing when death is going to come. We can live not knowing when pain is going to come. And we can live heroically in the face of our pain. We can have that sort of peace in the midst of our exile complex. We don't have to medicate our pain. We don't have to wallow in our pain. The resurrection of Jesus allows us to walk through it with sure hope. And here's the thing. There's this repeated thing throughout this passage, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is kind of the the, the beautiful thing about the resurrection is somehow all of our experiences of death, somehow all of our experiences of decay, somehow all of our experience of sin, it's going to serve to make things more glorious in the end. And that's a beautiful promise. And it's for you if you're in Christ. And if you're not, I, I would encourage you. Do you want this sort of hope? I would love to talk to you about it. I'd love to invite you into that. Let's pray together.